In my office, there is a coat rack like this. Recently, I bought some different sports swag to kind of represent the teams that I like. And truth of the matter is, I've been living here in Champaign, Illinois for now seven years. And so uh, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? So I bought some Illini swag and why shouldn't I? I mean, my wife is a big Illini fan. But the truth be known, I didn't grow up in Illinois. I actually grew up as a Hawkeye, born at the University of Iowa Hospital. Now, I know there's a few of you right now that are trying to get offline. You don't want to see this message, and you're kind of concerned, why in the world is Iowa memorabilia showing up in a message on Sunday morning? Well, uh, I want to start with this understanding that I live in a divided household, and yet we find unity even though we cheer for different teams. You know, in my office, there's this coat rack. And many of you know, well, I'm a, I'm a big Cardinals fan. I mean, I love the St. Louis Cardinals. One of the greatest teams of all time. So many Hall of Famers have played for the St. Louis Cardinals. But the truth of the matter is, is I have a staff that loves to put their own material on my coat rack. And so every now and then I walk in and there are things hanging from my coat rack that represent uh, other squads. And I'm not a Cubs fan. I'm a Cardinal fan. Uh, We live in an office divided. I'll just make this statement today. I know many of you pray for my soul and you pray for me to fly the W. Truth of the matter is, here's the deal. If the Cubs win the World Series this year, I'll I'll fly the W outside my office. I will. Uh, But if they lose... And the Cardinals win the World Series. I'll probably fly the M for mediocre. Now, we should probably get to our message. But uh, while you all boo and hiss me and get all upset, let's just talk about what it means to be in a divided household. Uh, We've been in this series called The Separation of Church and Hate. And while we've been talking about it, we've tried to warn you that, hey, we're not trying to get anybody to vote for a different political party or to cheer for a specific candidate. Matter of fact, we even went as far to work with our logo a little bit. And you'll notice when it changes at times, sometimes the red's on top and sometimes the blue's on top because we're not even subconsciously trying to push you any direction at all. But the reality is this, we've tried to press into this goal that we believe that we can disagree politically and still love unconditionally. That's our challenge as a church. And it's been difficult, specifically as the debates have started, that we've realized that there's even more and more dividedness in our country. I was in a staff meeting one time, not here. I worked for a different church. And one time we were doing some planning for the year. We were trying to figure out what will we preach through the next year. And we knew on our calendar that there was always one time of the year that we would do kind of a a God and country kind of Sunday morning service. Now, people have all sorts of opinions about it. And I love our country and I love our God. But as a church here, we tend to see those as different environments. But at this church, uh, it was part of their tradition. It was part of their heritage. They would pause and they would do a God and country weekend where they would celebrate over the 4th of July, the freedom that we have and the values that we have as a nation. And they would, they would get very involved in some of the political conversation. So we were sitting down and I was trying to kind of pull it back a little bit because, you know, I was recognizing that 
it was really becoming a, a dividing situation in our church. And so as we're planning out what we're going to preach about, what we're going to talk about, I just, I just wanted to raise the issue. And I just asked the question. I said, will we still do a patriotic Sunday for the 4th of July weekend? And the question was, why? Why do you ask? And I said, well, for some of my friends that don't go to church or some of the younger generations, while they love our country, they wrestle with what we're trying to communicate as a church by doing something so intentionally patriotic that sometimes it can mix some messages. And they said, well, what do you mean? And so I said, well, sometimes it feels like <laughs> if you don't vote Republican, you don't love Jesus, to which one of the pastors thought they'd be funny and said, can you? So I did what I, what I felt I should. I stood up, I walked across the room, and I punched him as hard as I could in the face. I'm joking, okay? I didn't, I didn't. Now, some of you are like, oh, I can't believe you said that. Now, I'm just gonna be honest. I, if he just said, if I'd asked, uh, if you don't vote Democrat, you can't love Jesus, I would be upset about that because we've tried to make this clear that Jesus is really homeless when it comes to politics. And we cannot hijack the message of Jesus or the message of scripture and blatantly connect it to any one political party. But it's been sticky. It's been uncomfortable. It's been difficult to walk through this conversation. But here's been part of our challenges. Our, our, our responses a bridge or a barrier? This has been the question that we've begun to press into in different ways throughout the weeks as we've talked about uh, civility and dignity and humility. We've been asking the question about how we treat social media, how we engage in conversation, the way we treat people around us that think differently, specifically in politics, but really applying it to almost any circumstance. How do we live with truth and grace bonded together in love so that Jesus is seen in every situation and every relationship? A goal for Jesus was for the followers of Jesus to be one. And so Jesus was constantly trying to build bridges to lead people towards the truth and grace of God. As a result of living a life like Jesus, Jesus begins to bond people closer together. He brings people together. When you love your neighbor as yourself, it brings people together. When you bless those who persecute you, it brings people together. When you love your enemies, it brings people together together. Unity is the fulfillment of God's love. It's expressed through God's people and it's bonding them together for God's purposes. So it's a priority for us today to talk about unity. Unity. And we need to understand that unity is a goal for the kingdom of God. Jesus made it a priority that unity would be a goal for the kingdom of God. The kingdom that he is bringing on earth, the reign that Christ followers will live under, will have a value of unity that's expressed in love. But unity shows up often in the, the maturation and the culmination of the values of civility, dignity, and, hum and humility being lived out. 
If you have your Bibles, you'll notice that in John chapter 17, Jesus begins to talk about a final prayer before God and what he desires for his followers, for his disciples. John, he says this in John chapter 17. My prayer is not for them alone, speaking of people who follow after Jesus' disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me and their message, meaning the coming followers of Jesus, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and me and I in uh, you, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus pauses, he calls a timeout and he says, God, as, as we're living this out, as Jesus is heading towards his death, his burial, his crucifixion, his, his resurrection, he's saying, one last thing, God, let, let's just get this right. I want them to be as united as we are one, the same mind, the same heart, the same purposes lived out in this world. And if they live united, it can serve as the validation that I was sent with a purpose. I was sent with a meaning that my life, my death, the burial and resurrection, it has value and meaning because we can see the evidence lived out in the people of God. And that's why Paul, an apostle, he writes some things down to the book of Ephesians about we should make the every effort to live at peace. Hey, he writes to the Romans when he says, as far as it's possible with you, be at peace with everyone. He says, back to the people in Ephesus, he says, you know, everybody has different gifts. They've been given different purposes. And they're for this reason, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the full measure of the fullness of Christ. Unity is a high marking value of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And Jesus saw unity as this maturing marker for the people of God who are growing in their faith, that they're learning how to live even amongst people who think and act and believe different than them. So it should perk up our ears anytime, anytime that Jesus begins to press into unity or calls out divisiveness. Unity is our goal as the people of God. In everything that we do in love, of everything that we do of civility and dignity and humility, of all the values that we are living out for Christ, it is to bring them together to be unified, to be one, so that in that unity, it would point to Jesus, his purpose. So let's jump into our main passage today. I wanna to encourage you to open up today to Matthew chapter 12. And Jesus has been teaching and doing miracles. And there is a hubbub that is brewing about Jesus and his authority and who he is. Why he says what he says, why he does what he does. And does he have the authority and is what he says worth following? Uh, Matthew 12 tells a story that's a, a narrative that's also lived out in Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 11. But I like what Matthew 12 says when he says this, starting in verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute, and Jesus heals him so that he could do both, talk and see. All the people were astonished, and they said, could this be the son of David? 
This is actually the setting of our passage. It's transitioning out of some of these miracles and some of these teachings and some of the hubbub that's building up. And, and they've gotten to the point that they're interacting, that they're bringing people of need to Jesus. And this man is demon-possessed, meaning his life is no longer under control of his own control. And it has now created a scenario for him where he is now blind and unable to speak. This possession has damaged even more so of his life and body. And Jesus heals him. Now they came expecting, wanting to see Jesus pull a rabbit out of his hat. And he does this miracle. But the question they ask is not, uh, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? It's more like, nah, nah. This can't be the son of David, can it? This can't really be the Messiah. I mean, the question is actually a mark of discredit, unbelief. And what happens is they're looking for a Messiah. They're looking for one who would come and would be a king that would reign. Jesus didn't quite fit what they were looking for. Jesus, uh, they, they wanted a, a conquering king, but they found a prince of peace. And they wanted a person of power and might. And they found a healer for the hurting. And then it goes on and says this, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So the conversation happens, the miracles in front of them, everybody's questioning by what authority, how is he doing this? Could this really be the Messiah? And the religious leaders of the day go, ah, no, no, this is, this is Beelzebul, a, a name of a, a, a pagan God. It's literally uh, translated like the Lord of the flies or the Lord of evil spirits or demons. We're talking about what we would call the devil. Literally, the Pharisees are saying, it's only by the power of the evil one that Jesus can do what he's doing. Look at verse 25, though. Jesus knew their thoughts. That should frighten you, right? <laughs> Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How can the kingdom, how can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they, the people, will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the power of God, that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. I love the opening words of Jesus. He knew their thoughts. The religious leaders, they're questioning the authority of Jesus. He can see their hearts and motives. The followers of Jesus, the closest disciples, they're recognizing that this is the authority of Jesus. And there's a message within itself of how people discredit and what people recognize. But what we need to see in here is that Jesus is making a declarative statement. He is standing in the middle of the tension and he says, you just need to know, you just need to know this, that a kingdom that's divided against itself, it's not going to stand. And a household or a people divided will crumble. You know, it's an interesting note that Jesus is standing in front of God-fearing people, uh, 
People who grew up expecting a Messiah. People who honored their life in the law and the way of God. They're, they're recognizing that there is a spiritual realm. They're recognizing that ultimately God has the ability to remove demons, to, to overcome evil. But also what's worth noting in this moment is while they share that view, what's happening is Jesus is talking to people or a household, and it's not a metaphorical household. Commentators will say, or scholars will write, that when you read the parallel of those three different passages uh, out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that literally part of the people that are criticizing and wrestling with Jesus and his authority are his family and friends. There's nothing more difficult. When division shows up between family and friends, there's nothing more painful. But Jesus presents this conundrum, right? If you say Satan drives out Satan, he's already defeated himself, his kingdom will fall. But if you say Jesus drives out demons by the power of God, then you need to recognize that the kingdom of God, the Messiah himself is standing in front of you. And Jesus puts this out and says, let the people decide and let's see what happens. But he declares, but if in any way I am able to drive out these demons, may we recognize that God is here, that God's power and God's might and God's glory and God's ability should be recognized in this moment. And we should honor that God is transforming a life and it should bring us together. What an incredible moment to rally around. That means just incredible just to be one of the followers, not only to see the miracle, but to recognize that perhaps what you have longed for all of your life, the healing, the power, the hope that's standing in front of you is real, it's tangible, and life can be changed. See, Jesus begins to cut away the divisiveness as he reaches into a moment of evil and brings healing to ultimately bring unity to the people around the people of, God, people of God are called to a life of unity, a life of unity that opens our hands and bends our knees to the will and the direction of God by the power of God's spirit, moving and leading us forward. God is advancing his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus through people to people for the glory of God. This is what we call the church. It is a unified, maturing expression of the presence of Jesus through God's people. And when God's people are unified for the purposes of the kingdom of God, a unified church then begins to point to Jesus. But here's the question out of this passage. If a unified church points to Jesus, who does a divided church point to? I had the privilege uh, a few days ago to actually uh, be a part of a, a, a CU gathering, a day of prayer. And it was a beautiful day because uh, nine or 10 or 12 pastors actually got up and shared scripture and prayed and just spent some time uh, seeking forgiveness before God, repenting before God, and, and just addressing some of the calamities, the evil, and the heartbreak of this world. 
What was interesting was uh, one of the pastors is a good friend of mine, Randy Boltinghouse. And Randy Boltinghouse is the pastor of Windsor Road. And if you've never heard him preach or never heard him pray, you, you have missed out on hearing a God-honoring man speak from both his soul and his mind in a way that just gives great clarity to the moment and to the text. Randy shared his prayer with me, and I wanted, to, I wanted to lay out part of this prayer of repentance that he shared when it comes to words that we speak, things that we say. He says this. This is his prayer, or a portion of it. Forgive us for abusing the freedom of speech. There is so much undisciplined speech in our day. Oh God, forgive me. Forgive me for the times I fail to regulate my mouth. Forgive us for using words to tear down instead of building up. Forgive us for spewing reckless words, toxic words, angry words, bitter words, blaming words, cutting words, false words, defensive words, and divisive words. Oh God, we do not need a new dictionary. We need a new heart. Change our hearts, Lord. Give us spiritual hearts, grateful hearts, reconciling hearts, and respectful hearts. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Give us fresh hearts to speak carefully, compassionately, and truthfully. Help us speak to one another as your glorious image bears. Randy gets that every life bears the image of God, the imprint of God's value on their life. And these words pierced my soul. God rattled my cage. It began to bring tears to my eyes as I just listened to the transparency and the confession of a man that I deeply admire say, we have all sinned. And in this moment of divisiveness and polarization of our community, sometimes the church is even led the charge and not in a good way. So let me ask you this question again. If a unified church points to Jesus, who does a divided church point to? I mean, if you read Jesus's words, there's only one of two options. It's him or the evil one. And frankly, friends, this happens when we, when we tear down politicians, when we speak ill of other people, when we openly criticize churches, when we talk behind people's backs. Friends, we have too many Christians that are, that are beginning to push people away from Jesus. And I'm heartbroken for the toxic and divisive posting that we tend to promote and even pass on because it represents maybe our political view. And we can do better. We must do better. And it starts by, by recognizing when people are speaking in divisive ways that we have to recognize that when we speak or post or act in that way, minimally, we're pushing away people from Jesus. In the worst case scenario, it's trying to give glory and honor to the divisive one. And when we as individuals do that, it not only points against God, it points against us as the church. The people of God are called to a life of unity, a life of unity that opens our hands 
It bends our knees to the will and the direction of the Father. By the power of God's Spirit moving us forward, working in our lives, God is advancing the kingdom of Jesus through his people. This is what we call the church, the unified, maturing expression of the presence of Jesus through God's people. And when the people of God are united for the purposes of the kingdom of God, the unified church will point to Jesus. So how do we pursue unity? Let me just give you a, a quick illustration. I love to give gifts to my, my boys, especially when they were young. And the hope of the gift is that I would give it to them and they would just, they would not only play with it for themselves, but we could play together. But do you remember buying those gifts, uh, the toys, the small trucks, whatever it may be, and they'd come in this wrapping that you'd have to rip and tear and get apart. And once you got the outer laying off, once you got that off, then you began to have to untie and unscrew and disconnect this toy just to bring it to the freedom that it could be played with. But after you've fought and torn and twisted and pulled and gotten everything out and you've given that present to your son, to your child, you wait for that moment, right? When the tires hit the carpet and he begins to rev it back and forth and he looks at you and says, Daddy, would you play with me? Oh, to give that toy freedom and to see your child be excited about the gift but that's not the gift. It's the invitation to come together. But you had to fight to get to that point. It wasn't just handed to you. It took work. It took effort. It took planning. It took tearing apart a gift just to present it to our son. And so this is going to sound weird, but when it comes to unity, we're going to have to fight for it. So let me give you three fights that we need to step into as Christians in this season of divisiveness. Here, here's the first fight we're gonna have to recognize. It's this. Our fight is not with people, but with powers. That's why Ephesians 6 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's why we put on the full armor of God, because we're stepping into a battle of a spiritual realm. Second of all, we have to recognize that our fight is spiritual. It's spiritual, both publicly and privately, meaning it's happening in every moment of your life, whether you're in front of people or whether you're alone in your own world. That's why James, James confronts in chapter four, verse one, what causes the fights and quarrels amongst you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within Oh, our first Corinthians talks about, no, here's how we discipline ourselves. We, we, we beat our bodies to make it a slave so that we can make sure that we're not disqualified for the prize that God has put in front of us. Third of all, our fight is for one another, not just for ourselves. There is a lost world around us. There are people who are following God who need rallied to the mission of Jesus. We can't just look for our faith and our walk. The we is greater than the me. We have to recognize that this fight is for others. 
And that there are people that can be won to Christ, brought to Christ. And that's why, that's why the gospel of John says in chapter 13, a new command I give you to love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, unity. In many ways, it's the maturation of all four that we've talked about. Civility and dignity, humility. But as we wrap up this conversation of separation of church and hate, may we learn to love unconditionally, though we disagree politically. May we live in civility, uh, being able to hold on to our convictions and our civility towards each other. May we live with dignity by honoring one another as God would honor them. And would we live in humility by taking a posture like Jesus over a position of power in our world. We have a wonderful opportunity that as the people of God, we can come together in unity to serve as the validation that Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection was sent by God so that the world may know God's love and experience the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. And by us living out this life of love, the world may recognize that in all the divisive polarization moments of our world, that there is a church, a people of God who are led by God's spirit, surrendered to God's will, so that he may get glory, the world may be reached, and we might live in his love. Let's move to a time of response. That was a great message by Danny today. When I think about fighting for unity, I think about my marriage. And not because we fight all the time, but because it is important for us to be unified because we have five kiddos. And so we have got to be unified in our parenting, in our discipline styles, unity is key. And I want our kids to see that unity is strong and that unity is valuable, but above everything, unity is rooted in love and it's crucial for them to see that. As we close out this sermon series, I just wanted to remind you of our big idea one last time, and that's we can disagree politically and love unconditionally. Over the next few weeks, we're going to disagree politically, and it is going to be everywhere. That's going to be the easy part. The hard part is loving unconditionally. We have to love people regardless whether our political views are the same or different. It is our job to love unconditionally. So if we want to be a church that helps each other follow Jesus, and we wanna be a loving community, a loving community means that our church needs to be where everyone feels welcome and where everybody feels love walking through our doors, but especially that everybody experiences, experiences the life transforming grace of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound like an incredible church? That's the church we're called to be. So as we continue to um, do our time of response, I invite you in two ways to join me. 
The first is through giving generously. If you wanna give of your offerings and your tithes today, you can do that in the Give and Respond boxes, or you could do that through the Give app or through our first app. And the second is to take communion together. And truly, unity begins at the cross because Jesus died for us so that if we confess and believe, then we get to spend eternity with him and how amazing that's going to be. And so I would encourage you to get out your communion elements and Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for the cross and we are so thankful that you chose us and not because of anything that we've done, not because of anything that we will do, but simply because it says you first loved us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying on the cross to save us from our sins so that we can spend eternity with you.